This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. I'm Cynthia Graber. Over the past decade, the use of the term food addiction to describe an unhealthy approach to eating has grown. It refers to the idea that, for some people, their inability to control their food intake has similarities to that of a drug of abuse. Paul Kenny is the chair of the Department of Neuroscience at the ICANN School of Medicine in New York. He's one of two authors of a recent circumspective in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. In the piece, Dr. Kenny and his colleague Dr. Paul Fletcher of the University of Cambridge take opposing viewpoints, Dr. Fletcher arguing against the use of the term food addiction and Dr. Kenny in favor. Dr. Kenny, as your colleague Dr. Fletcher was unable to join us, I'd like you to represent his views as well as your own. In this circumspective, you're debating and discussing the evidence as to whether foods in certain circumstances and in some individuals can be addictive in the same way that drugs of addiction like cocaine, heroin, or nicotine are. Let's start with the substance itself. Dr. Fletcher argues that the addictive substance in food has yet to be discovered. What does he mean? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a really good point. So if you are addicted to heroin, heroin is the problem. You kind of know what the issue is and your behavior is directed towards obtaining that particular substance. And the reason for that is the substance has an action on the brain and all these kind of complex circuits we have that guides your behavior. So conceptually, you can see very clearly where there is a substance acting in the brain and that modifies the brain such that you you have problematic behaviors that emerge. In the case of food, Is there an equivalent substance? Is there something that's contained in particular types of food that can support the emergence or the development of an addiction? And I guess Paul's concern would be that without an ingredient, without a component that would kind of support this type of behavior, how can you possibly have an addiction? Whereas I think from my perspective, it's not necessarily one ingredient. It's really how we blend our foods. And so, you know, there's, there's things that we consume on a regular basis that don't occur in nature. And there's many instances of those types of foods, but you can think of anything deep fried, basically, especially, you know, deep fried carbohydrate. You're changing the form and the function of food, and you're basically inserting lots of lipids into carbohydrate rich uh, food substances. And you could see how that blending of different macronutrients could act in the brain in a manner that's different from consuming, say, a meal that's really high in fat or a meal that's high in separately in carbohydrate. When you put those two things together in a manner that really is palatable, I think that's where the problem is. So it's, it's not necessarily a single problematic ingredient. It's all the ingredients and how we put them together in a way really to optimize their impact on the very same circuits that drugs of use act on. You've shown that rats can be manipulated to show patterns of behavior that map onto what look like food addiction. What are you seeing, and what are Dr. Fletcher's concerns with the rodent models? So, yeah, we can uh, provide diets to our rats, and we've we've done this, and we continue to do this on a regular basis in our lab, where we give rats, for example, or mice access to food substances that humans eat. So rather than the commercially available gel that you would typically raise your animals on and let them consume, which are kind of bland but nutritious, we give them things that humans like to eat, like cheesecake and uh, bacon, sausage, ding-dongs, like a standard cafeteria diet, and we give them a choice. And we see invariably a dramatic shift in preference in our animals that they they like eating the palatable food. And that's one of the, the strongest phenotypes from the strongest behavior, something we're really interested in the lab is if we now take away that kind of palatable food, we find that they really will not switch back over onto the chow that they had before and they'll 
volitionally starve for long periods of time rather than eat something that they now don't like, even though before they consumed it just fine. There's been such a dramatic shift in preference that the animals just won't eat when they don't have their preferred food. And we get another addiction-relevant behavior with that in mind because if we then challenge the animals or threaten the animals with punishment for consuming the food, in other words, we're going to make it very costly for you to consume this food, we see that the animals will accept punishment in order to consume that palatable food rather than uh, consume chow. And of course, Paul's concern will be, how well does that translate? I completely accept that concern. I think that's a very valid concern. You know, rats are not humans. Again, my counter-argument would be um, that these are such fundamental circuits that have evolved throughout evolution and, you know, down to the precise neuropeptide content of these cells and the regions that they communicate with and uh, in other regions of the brain and those regions that receive information from outside the brain, that that basic circuitry is very highly conserved across mammalian species. So it would be shocking if at least the fundamentals, the very basics of the shift in preference that we talk about and these other striking behaviors relate to the value of food weren't also conserved into humans. To sum up another argument in the paper, Dr. Fletcher argues that there's no brain imaging that will show that someone is addicted to food, and your response is that there's no clear image that can definitively show whether someone is addicted to heroin, that imaging technology and our understanding of it isn't yet advanced enough, and that, say, heroin addiction will look different in imaging than tobacco addiction. Overall, Dr. Fletcher thinks that more research is needed before science can show that food addiction is a genuine neurological condition and certain people are genuinely addicted to foods. You write in your section that you hesitate to position yourself as a defender of the term. Why do you then take up that position throughout the article? Yeah, I mean, again, it just depends on what you mean by addiction. And I can understand Paul's concern. He's like, someone is addicted to food. You have a particular type of a disorder. And you, here's a 15-item checklist, and we've checked all these items, and that means you're officially a food addict. And I, I think that that may be something of a disservice to individuals who are overweight and they're struggling to control their weight. You know, everyone is, everyone is different, um, of course, but I think that some individuals, they struggle to control their, their food consumption because of the choices they've made and the foods that have been available to them. And I think ultimately... I'd be more concerned, well, not refining a checklist or figuring out which kind of items should be included on that, but how do we get better at recognizing that um, people have issues with controlling their food consumption, not just the overall amounts, but the, their choices in, in, in foods, the items they like and how they blend them and how they consume. I think that that's more at the heart of the problem that people have, that you know, there's particular food items and particular diets that they like and they've switched onto those diets and they've consumed them for long periods of time and people really, really struggle to modify their food choices because in part, I believe, their, their preference for the types of foods that they want, these energy-dense foods, has shifted and those memories are very long-lasting, practically indelible in the brain and you're constantly making those choices, even subconsciously, I guess, but constantly making those choices in terms of what you're going to eat, what's going to comprise your next meal. So we've been focusing on the areas where the two of you more or less disagree, but there are a lot of areas where you agree, right? Yeah, I think the area that we agree with most is the need for, <laughs> of course, we would say this being scientists, but the need for, for more research, more work. You know, I, th- I think we're really at the early stages in terms of understanding how the brain responds to um, consumption of different types of diets, how the brain responds to being overweight, how the brain responds to losing weight. And, you know, 
I, I just don't think we know enough now. And I do, I do believe that a lot more research is going to be required before we begin to understand really the underlying neurobiological processes that are involved in the types of things I've been talking about, at least in terms of food choice, food consumption, persistence of weight loss once it's been accomplished. And I think without that kind of information, it's very difficult to really make rational arguments about whether someone is demonstrating abnormalities in brain circuits that are really analogous or, in fact, the, the very same type of adaptations or alterations that you see in someone who's heroin addicted. We, we just don't know that now, at least in my view. And of course, this is all complicated by the fact that we all need to eat to stay alive. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We all have to eat, basically, to stay alive. I, I think the question would be, but what do you eat? This is my own perspective, and other people can and likely will disagree. But I think you, you've cut to the heart of the issue. You know, we have to eat to stay alive. But we're not driven simply by calories. We're also hedonic individuals, and we refine our choices and the foods we consume based on our actions on the brain. And that's when we run into issues. And I think that's the issue. You know, can you control your diet in terms of the amount of food you consume, the frequency, and the type? And all too often, people can't. Even when you say, you've now developed insulin resistance, you're, you've got type 2 diabetes, it's going to impact your life. You cannot eat these types of foods. You can't eat them at that kind of frequency. And all too often, people fail. And so I, I, I don't think it's the same as saying we need food to live. I think that, that's a given. I think the question becomes, which foods do you choose to eat? And I think that is where the issue of food addiction really lies. This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. To read Food Addiction, A Valid Concept, go to www.nature.com slash NPP. I'm Cynthia Graber.